0: Ah, good evening. Um, welcome to contest for the Indo-Pacific, a Latrobe Asia event. I am Beck Strating, the executive director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University. Uh, I would like to start this event by acknowledging the elders of the Bun Wurrung and Wurundjeri uh, who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which we meet tonight. I would also like to pay respects to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to other Aboriginal Australians who are present with us tonight. Latrobe Asia is very proud of our efforts to engage the public in thoughtful debate to deepen our understanding and knowledge of the region in which we live. And I am particularly delighted tonight that we are able to help Professor Rory Medcalf launch his book in Melbourne, Contest for the Indo-Pacific, Why China Won't Map the Future. Very intriguing title, of course, published by uh, our very own Latrobe University Press. Now, I'm sure that Rory needs no introduction for many of the people here tonight. Uh, In his current role, he is professor and head of the National Security College at the Australian National University. He has had a prolific career as a practitioner and thought leader in Australian international affairs. His professional background involves almost three decades of experience across diplomacy, intelligence, think tanks and journalism, as well as academia, uh, including as the inaugural director of the International Security Program at the Lowy Institute. And for those of you who are active on social media like myself on Twitter, you probably would have seen the launch in Canberra for this book included both the Foreign Minister Maurice Payne and the Shadow Foreign Minister Penny Wong, uh, who spoke at the event, Um, a nice show of bipartisanship uh, and support for your book there, Rory. So we are very lucky to have you here with us tonight. Uh, We are also delighted to welcome Penny Burt, who will present some introductory remarks about the book and about this idea of the Indo-Pacific. Like Rory, Penny has also had a varied and highly distinguished career in international affairs. Penny is currently the Group CEO of AsiaLink at the University of Melbourne, uh, but she has also held senior leadership roles in the corporate sector, particularly in Asia, including for Visa and uh, McKinsey and Company. And he's also, like Rory, a former diplomat and advisor to the Australian Minister for Foreign Affairs. Welcome, Penny. Now, there will be an opportunity for audience Q&A this evening in the last part of the session for which we will be using Slido so please go to Slido.com on your devices and enter the code #7861. You will be asked. Uh, you will be able to ask questions. Uh, everybody will be able to see those questions as the discussion is taking place. You will also be able to vote. On the questions. So when I'm sitting there on my device, I'll be able to see which questions are the most highly ranked. They will be the ones that are up the top, uh, and I'll be able to read them off the screen. If you do not have a device, you can ask somebody who is sitting near you uh, if you can borrow their device to type a question or we have Tom up the back there and Diana in the foyer, they will have devices that you can use uh, in order to get your question across and afterwards we will have signings, the most important part of a book launch, Uh, after the event the books uh, will be available uh, to purchase in the foyer so please do that. Uh, So now let me turn over to Penny Burt for some opening remarks.
1: Uh, thank you very much, Beck, for that um, very warm welcome. Good evening, and it's wonderful to see so many friends here this evening and people who are passionate about understanding the future of the Indo-Pacific and Australia's place in the world. Um, I would actually like to echo Beck by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, It gives me great pleasure to be here this evening at the launch of the contest for the Indo-Pacific, Why China Won't Map the Future, as the other penny, you've already had the best penny, (laughs) by Professor Rory Medcalf, head of the National Security College at the ANU. Um, Amongst all of the fabulous things that Rory has done in his career, I would also say he's a former colleague and is a friend, and that gives me special pleasure and privilege to have this honor tonight. Um, Most importantly, though, for our discussion, Rory is recognized as one of the world's leading thinkers for his work on the Indo-Pacific concept and for his effort in really redefining how we think about contemporary international relations for Australia. So I'm just getting the... I have to put my other mic on. Are we okay up there? Great. Um, Rory's book is a fantastic, actually incredibly timely, given our policy context, exploration of the Indo-Pacific construct, what it means, why it matters, and really ultimately how it's going to shape Australia's future. It's also a very exciting geostrategic argument for a new approach and for collective action by Australia and other middle powers in response to a rising China and a less engaged U.S. And most importantly, it's actually, and I think that this is deeply important, it's also, dare I say, and we can ask you about this, it's an impassioned plea for a different kind of future, um, a future that's going to ensure peace and stability in our region. Because if diplomacy fails and we don't try and reimagine our region and the way that we engage... Rory actually warns that the Indo-Pacific is going to be the theatre of the first general war since 1945. It's a very sobering thought. Um, I want to speak for a moment about what Rory calls maps and myth-making. The book starts with the most fascinating exploration of mental maps and cartography. Who's read the book? All right. So I'm going to decide how deep I'm going to go, so how many we're going to sell (laughs) this evening. Um, Go hard. All right. Um, I'm absolutely fascinated by maps. Clearly so too is Rory. Rory in his book suggests that the Indo-Pacific is both a place and an idea. And what we call different parts of the world gone up. Asia, Europe, the Middle East is often something that we take for granted. But Rory actually argues that the name that we give our region is Totemic. It's a mental map that actually guides the decisions of leaders and then actually guides the story of international order, war, and peace. That's a fascinating idea. So the Indo-Pacific has entered into our lexicon is both a region that we can see, but it's actually a way of understanding the world. The Asia-Pacific, for the people in my generation, was the idea that dominated our foreign policy and our thinking from, I'm told, roughly 1980, but I was still at school then, until about 2010 when the lexicon started to change. In the 1990s, when Rory and I first joined the Foreign Service, note he is much younger than me, um, Australia was under the Hawke and Keating Labor governments pivoting to Asia. It was a different time then, and Australia was trying to make its way in a rapidly changing region. In 1995, the then Australian Foreign Minister Gareth Evans unveiled to ASEAN ministers at their annual conference. Um, a map redefining Australia's place in the world. Um, It placed Australia at the centre, of course, the centre of a new configuration that Gareth had decided to call the East Asian Hemisphere. And I was actually going to share a copy of the map tonight. I understand Rory's got one. But I think it's been so consigned in the historical archives, (laughs) I wasn't... I wasn't sure I had the right copy of it, but the map has Siberia to the north, it's got Antarctica to the south, Burma to the west, and in the in between were China, Korea, Japan and Southeast Asia. So the map was actually drawn up by Australian officials, hands up if you were one of them, and photocopied and printed in embassies all around the region by many, many others. Um... And it was a key part of Australia's efforts to convince our neighbours that Australia was not really down under or off the map, but we were one of them. We were central to the region. And um, the minister pronounced in his media conference at the end of that ASEAN ministerial meeting, the East Asian hemisphere is where we live This is where we have to find our security. This is where we can best guarantee our prosperity. This is where not only our neighbours are, but our closest friends. At the time, for those of you who remember, and for those of you who don't, this redrawing of the map and claiming of a central place in the region for Australia deeply provoked our ASEAN neighbours. The um, ever-prickly Malaysians, I was serving in Malaysia at the time, Thanks, Gareth. The ever-prickly Malaysians responded. I think it was Foreign Minister Abdullah Badawi responded. Um, no, actually, you are down under, and Australia is a continent. You're not a part of Asia. Um, there were headlines all around the region. My favourite was um, the East Seas Red over Oz Map Wizardry. <laughs> that went down well. However... Here we are. There's been a swift remaking over the past few years. The Indo Pacific, not the Asia Pacific, has now become the go to label for the region for Australia, the US, Japan, India, ASEAN, and actually some European powers, notably France. To quote our own Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, in June 2019, I calculate that's about 24 years. 20-plus years after the map, Um, Scott Morrison, June 2019. The Indo-Pacific is where we live. It is where Australia has its greatest influence. It is the region that will continue to shape Australia's prosperity, security, and destiny. Sound familiar? (laughs) So why the change? What happened in that time that made us rethink the map? And try and reconceptualize the region. Um, why are we now talking about the Indo Pacific? And really, what is in a name? And that's what Rory has tried to explore in this fabulous book. Um, the contest for the Indo Pacific offers a great origin story, actually, for the Indo Pacific. The term, ex- as Rory explores, has a history far longer actually, than Australia's defence and foreign policy establishment would lead you to believe. It wasn't invented in the Department of Defence in 2013 or in the DFAT white paper in 2017. Um, The book actually charts this fabulous long sweep of history, spoiler alert, um, in which India was actually the dominant power in our region for centuries Um, A point that China, of course, contests, but a very different history to the one that many of us have and carry with us all the time. Um, Fast forwarding to today, the contemporary use of the term actually reflects the changing geostrategic environment. What has changed and the reason we've renamed the region is the rise of China and its increasing dominance and ambition in the region India's arrival as a major player, the shift in the centre of economic gravity from east to west, a less engaged United States, the sort of geo-economics and geo-strategy of the two oceans. And these are things that we all know are happening and we talk about, but very few of us stop and wonder how is it actually shaped differently, the way that we should conceive of the region. Um, on the other hand, while the countries we've talked about views this new construct of the Indo-Pacific, China's contemporary description of much of the world is simply, as Rory explains, belt and road. Belt and road. And that concept is fundamentally tied to China's worldview, not surprisingly, and its ambitions for the world and its growing power. What we're seeing... According to Rory, it's this huge contest of ideas in which the mental maps of Asia have really been simplified down to two the Belt and Road versus the Indo Pacific. Two minutes on the detractors. You can put your hands up for that as well. In scholarship, there's always contestability, and this new notion of the Indo Pacific has made some people very uncomfortable. Um, there are plenty of people who've questioned whether this a- is actually a seismic shift in the region. Is it a helpful way of understanding what we do? Um, Alan Gingell, the chair of the Australian Institute for International Affairs and former um, former head of the Office of National Intelligence, says each country has got its own Indo-Pacific. It's a bit a, b- a bit of a leap to knit that together. Um And, of course, the US, Japan, Australia, we all use slightly different language to explain the concept. ASEAN, in its own bid to reassert some kind of centrality, it's another whole lecture, some kind of centrality and role in the region, it released its own view of the Indo-Pacific, which has got China in, and the US, of course, has China out of its view of the Indo-Pacific. And, of course, China, as the largest player in the region, won't have a bar of the idea of the Indo-Pacific. It hears the Indo-Pacific as a rationale for containment and sees the Indo-Pacific as a wicked alliance of democracies working against China's largest ambitions. So should we actually be surprised that there is dispute over how we interpret the region, what our mental map is? Um, Spoiler alert, again, the book suggests not. We shouldn't be surprised by that. It suggests that despite these subtle differences, um, the Indo-Pacific construct for middle powers, that includes us, is actually a really interesting way of navigating the turbulence and those changes in the region. And it's a way for countries like Australia, Indonesia, India, to understand and begin to push back against this binary choice of, is it the US? Is it China? What do we do? And where do we go? And I think, to be frank, for the many government officials sitting in the room, it's actually quite comforting to have somebody say, you don't have to choose. And there is actually a third way. Um, The jury is really out, to be honest, um, I think, on whether the middle powers in the region can group around this new idea and this new construct and find a way of coming together to counterbalance a rising China, and a less engaged U.S. Um, At the end of the day, the question is, is the Indo-Pacific really a sufficient rallying call? And is there enough there that's going to allow this to be the tool that that Rory imagines? So there are still a lot of questions to be answered, and for that we're very fortunate to have um, the fabulous Beck Stratting and Rory himself for a question and answer. Some of the questions that I would like to have answered are, how does China respond to this idea? Write them down, Beck. Um, how does China respond to this idea? You know, if, if, if an Indo-Pacific and emerging collaboration of middle powers is, is one answer, is that something that is going to be easy to navigate over time? And when we think about these countries coming together for new collaborative action, why is it that they haven't managed to do that through the existing regional institutions, through APEC or the East Asia Summit or, you know, the ASEAN Regional Forum? Why is it that collective action has kind of not really helped constrain and reinforce rules-based order in the region in the way that we might have imagined? And lastly, um, is it really possible for Australia or Indonesia or Japan to collaborate with India when India has got a really close relationship with Russia? Um, Is resurgent Hindu nationalism and a whole different sense of the Indo-Pacific a constraint on how how we should be thinking about collaborating with India in the Indo-Pacific? So um, at the end of the day... This is actually a question for all of us in the room and we're very, very fortunate to have Rory here to discuss that with us and we're incredibly fortunate, if you want to know the answers to all the questions, to have this fabulous book which you should all read. Thank you very much. Thank you,
0: Penny. Penny. Um, There is uh, a lot of threads uh, in there that I'm sure Rory will want to um, pick. And it is a great privilege to be here. Uh, You are one of the key architects of the uh, Indo-Pacific concept. So to be able to grill you on this for a little while is an incredibly exciting experience. I just want to start with a very broad question. Um, What is the (laughs) Indo-Pacific? Because in the book and and in uh, discourses more, more widely, it can be described as a concept, a policy, a strategy, a mental map. Um, a narrative. Uh, it's both a place and idea, picking up on what Penny said at the start. So for you, what is the core of the Indo-Pacific? It's probably all of those things in some way, but what's at the heart of this concept? And more importantly, why does it matter? Look,
2: they're the, they're the big questions, Beck. It's a real real pleasure to be here and uh, I'll of course join our hosts in acknowledging the traditional owners of, of the land on which uh, we're meeting. Uh, so, I've cheated a little bit today, and I've brought a few maps along with me, because I think that would help. Uh, that, w- <coughs> that will save me a lot of words, and it will uh, I say it save a thousand words. I guess um, I want to try and come to some of those other questions later and answer as many of your questions as I can, Um, I think the most important starting point, though, is to say that uh, I would say we need to think about and advocate a different view of the region precisely because it's useful. And I think it's the utility of this, the fact that it's useful for our leaders, our policymakers, our governments, and indeed the broader public to rethink uh, in a more confident way what Australia can do in the world. That's really where I started with this. Uh, the rest is really interesting, uh, but in the end, and I mean, without giving too much away, talking to uh, Penny Wong and Maurice Payne, who were launching the book the other night, um, I think uh, they, they probably got a lot more out of the second half of the book, which is not the history bit, than the first half, even though the history bit was the fun bit to write. So look, let me see if this works. It does. Excellent. We have a couple of maps here, uh, and I might just Quickly, and you interrupt me if I'm taking too long on the maps, because I could be here for hours just on the maps. <laughs> I bed. like the um, maps too. But, but yeah, 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 so I'll, I'll, I've got a few, but I'll just go for the first two or three at the moment. Uh, right. Maybe the first yeah, three. Okay. So look, the as I say, the Indo-Pacific is both a place and an idea. And at one level, it seems bizarrely obvious that one would write a book about The place where Australia happens to be in the world. I mean, we look at the map, we're obviously between two oceans. In fact, we're between three oceans if you add the Southern Ocean as well. And within another 20 or 30 years, we might need to rename the region yet again um, as the Southern Ocean becomes more important. But I think what's What's changed in the last 20 to 30 years since the, um, the days of Gareth Evans, when I was a slightly more clean-shaven recruit to DFAT, uh, is that uh, we, in a sense, we rediscovered the Indian Ocean and South Asia. And when I say we, I really mean uh, all of the rest of the region and the world. Uh, there's this myth that the Indo-Pacific's all about India... It's actually, yes, partly about India and the fact that the Indian Ocean has become... uh, So, India's a rising power and will be one of the big three economies this century, despite the the, the terrible troubles we're seeing it go through at the moment. The Indian Ocean in the last generation has become the global artery of trade and commerce, uh, particularly energy. And China, although it is, I guess, in East Asia, in Gareth's East Asian hemisphere, China... uh, as it rose, the very the very year that China joined APEC, the the group of fourteen men, incidentally, meeting in Seattle in nineteen ninety three, in that very different world, to form what we all thought was the region, and China joined APEC, the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation uh, body, it was becoming a net importer of oil from the Middle East and Africa. So that was the very structural foundation of this whole new region. So to get to your point. The Indo-Pacific is a a new way of imagining our region whereby the connectivity between the Indian Ocean and the Pacific through the sea lanes of Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia is absolutely core and critical to that, is the system, it's the strategic and economic system in which Australia has to exist. Now, the good news is that it does, by definition, put Australia in the region. We don't need to go out and plead our case to the region to argue whether we belong to this particular asian hemisphere or not it even transcends the question of whether australia is a is of asia or not australia is indo pacific and importantly it's not a uniquely australian idea australia led In pushing this idea seven years ago, but Indonesia, for example, is very much on board with its own variation. And I think we all know when Indonesia says something, it's not an American plot. (laughs) The last two maps I'm going to give you, just to give you a picture, a a clearer picture of this, the fact that the Indo Pacific is a system that affects our interests, um, explain that this is not a new thing. And so I just, if you'll indulge me a second, we can come back to the history if you want but I do need to show you my favourite map first. Before I get there, I might just note also that that's the Indo-Pacific as a place. The Indo-Pacific as an idea is that idea that it's a region that is too large to dominate. And precisely because uh, there is concern about China's, I guess... Uh, strategic assertiveness and its push for what I would call geoeconomic dominance of the region, um, there is now an incentive for small and middle powers across the region to create a context not of containment, uh, not of trying to strangle China, which would be ridiculous, but a context in which China has to respect the rights and interests of others, and we can get that through some form of collective action. So the Indo-Pacific gives us a canvas where countries like Australia can find common cause with countries... Uh, as diverse as Japan, uh, Indonesia, India, obviously the United States, Vietnam, France. You know, they're back in the region in many ways. And that creates a context where it's harder for China. Okay. To Can throw I push, you push me. I'll come back to the history bit. in a second. Um, if that's okay. You won't get away from the history, but please. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, well, it, it brings in part of what yeah. Penny was saying uh, about China and the fact yeah. that um, China hasn't responded particularly enthusiastically mm. to the Indo-Pacific concept. And there seems to be a, a bit of a tension. I mean, one of the great things about Rory's book, uh, from my perspective, is that it has quite an optimistic approach to agency and the mm. fact that middle and small powers don't just have to accept what they're given. They don't have to just be caught in a great power competition. And that, for me, is quite an optimistic point of view. Um, But the place of China I find Mm. quite interesting Mm. because, on the one hand, you know, in the book you describe China as an Indo-Pacific power. Mm. So it is part of the Indo-Pacific but what's driving this concept of the... ..or the construct of the Indo-Pacific is also a shared concern about mm. rising China. Mm. And then you have... Um, we were at Raisina together, yeah. the Raisina Dialogue um, in India uh, earlier this yeah. year, and a really good example of what I'm about to talk about was you had defence um, representatives of uh, the UK, France, Japan, India and Australia, and they were at pains to say, this is not about any one state... It's it's not about China, it's about, you know, all of these other states um, coming together, I guess, um, to collaborate on on shared challenges. But it still is about China, even if there's this resistance uh, in some quarters to say that it's about China. So, in your view, where does China... Is it an Indo-Pacific country, yeah. um, and, and how does it fit in with, uh, you know, the, the engagements of these states? I mean, should these states be engaging with China on things like the Belt and Road, or uh, is the Indo-Pacific a call to arms for resistance and pushback?
2: Too many questions in there, Beck. I'm going to try them all, but I'll, you've got to come back to me on the ones I don't answer. That's all... Look, um, so I think you've, you've really cut to the chase and in a sense you've gone straight to um, the end of my list of maps, so I'll come back to it, Um, and you've also gone straight to the subtitle or the second title of the book, you know, secondary title, Why China Won't Map the Future. And I think my publishers are here in the audience. We spoke about this when the book was was being developed. Um, I think it's a very pithy title. It's also a title that can be misinterpreted because uh, this is not what I would call an anti-China book. It's a pro-multipolarity book, and it was interesting at the launch in Canberra to have many of the diplomatic community in the audience, including uh, the Chinese Deputy Head of Mission. So I think there's a recognition that this is a book about how really the rest of the region would like to incorporate China into the region in a way where China is, is prominent but not dominant. Now, China prominent but not dominant is the argument I make about the history of the region, in a sense where... The, the aim is almost to return the region to its historical state of being multipolar of being many sided, and look there are, the indo pacific isn 't the whole answer it 's just one of the useful tools, but also a tool that has some validity in history whereby I think we can actually help over time China find that place. I like to say it 's about uh, using pushback. Um, deterrence, uh, these other measures, but also diplomacy, development, some degree of cooperation to help China find a settling point for its rise. Um, now, that's the confident view. Other, a lot of folks say the book is optimistic. I say it's confident. You know, because bad things are going to happen. Mm. It's just that I think uh, nations like Australia, that are actually very substantial nations, need a bit of resolve in dealing with those bad things. Can I just quickly jump into history? Do you mind? Go for it. Um, if we get there. Just Exhibit B, um, just to show that I'm not making all this stuff up, uh, in a sense. So this map, 1402, it's a Korean map, uh, the Cognito map, a fascinating Korean map of the world. Incidentally, it doesn't see Japan's, this tiny little scattering of islands south of the great big Korea over there on the uh, eastern side of the map. So it's definitely a Korean map, (laughs) but it's based on... Um, a lot of the uh, the the knowledge, the commerce, the connectivity that was beginning to occur across Asia and between Asia and Europe. So you actually had in 1402, before European colonialism, uh, Asia as one, and that one Asia was essentially, uh, if you look at the large shape in the middle of the map, that's a combination of China, India, and Southeast Asia. Um, what looks like India over there is in fact Africa with a very large lake in the middle of it, and so. You know, there was this sense that Asia was one and that it wasn't just simply, if you like, China at the centre and the rest of the region as as tributaries. And interestingly, if you then jump forward uh, to exhibit C, if you jump forward to the colonial era, this map, 1570, very much my, my very favourite uh, map in the book, um, by, the, um, by Ortelius of Antwerp, who was really the cartographer of Portuguese and Dutch uh, colonialism, but interestingly, it captures that sense that we recognise. If you go back to the Indo-Pacific, uh, you know, India, Southeast Asia, North Asia, Australia, North America, all in the one frame. We knew it in 1570, and this is a map about what mattered in that era: the commerce, the strategic political connections, and so on. There's even a little bit of Australia there, labelled Beach, so they knew something about Australia even in 1570. And yes, there are mermaids and sea monsters, which <laughs> I think are no more mythical than the nine-dash line that China proclaims in the South China Sea. But it just shows that, in a way, you know, if, we, if we can go back to that shape of the region, as I think we've done through the Indo-Pacific and some of these institutions that, that, that Penny's mentioned, the East Asia Summit, we're getting, we're getting somewhere. So your question is, what does China think about all of this? And so I'm just going to go to this map for a second. Because in the year that the Belt and Road was proclaimed by Xi Jinping as China's grand signature initiative for engagement with the world in 2013, speeches in Jakarta and in uh, Kazakhstan, uh, this map was released. And this map tells you a lot, I think, about China's strategic vision. This is endorsed by the Chinese government. It's widely used, including by the Chinese Navy. Um, it's a fascinating view of the world. It's Indo-Pacific for a start. Just because China doesn't call the region the Indo-Pacific and condemns the name at the moment because it doesn't like the fact that it's the Indo-Pacific, not the Sino-Pacific, doesn't mean that China's actual own behaviour and interests and presence are not Indo-Pacific. The Belt and Road, the maritime part of that, is the Indo-Pacific with a Chinese name. And this map, which we'll come back to later if we have time, puts the Indian Ocean at the centre of the world. Interestingly, it also... In a, an act of wish-making cuts America in two and throws it off to the margins of the universe. So, <laughs> so um, you know, maps can tell you a lot about how nations think. Very now, so on China, I, I guess to, to really cut back to your question, if you like, and we'll stay on this one, on China, I would say that rhetorically, of course, the People's Republic of China does not like the Indo-Pacific because it's not a made-in-China term. It... It seems to give India a bit of privileging. It justifies the existence and the role of many powers having agency in the region. But at the same time, I don't think China can escape its Indo-Pacific destiny. It's living it. So whether China one day does or doesn't come to terms with the the term Indo-Pacific, I think, is actually immaterial. It's the fact that China is quintessentially the most Indo-Pacific country, pretty much, that there is, with all of its engagement across the Indian Ocean, its navy in the Indian Ocean, the Belt and Road, its engagement in Africa. It's kind of living the dream, whether it likes it or not. And so, of course, we have to engage. But my argument is engage in a conditional way where uh, really a collective of countries is setting the terms, not one country with China, one by one alone, because if a smaller country tries to set terms with China, it's always going to... Lose.
0: I'm going to collapse a couple of Please. questions. And I'll give from you shorter
2: answers, I promise. I've done the maps now. I feel better. So. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the maps are great. I mean, yeah, yeah. the US, yeah. it's an interesting perspective right there. Very revealing maps can be. But I'm going to collapse a couple of um, uh, questions that are coming in uh, through the Slido, along with uh, a question that I had prepared earlier. You were mm. saying that um, you know, these, the, some of these maps are showing Asia as, as mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was reading the book, one of the things mm-hmm. that I was struck mm-hmm. by was the the countries that are the most sort of focused on are those maritime mm. Asia countries and the Indo-Pacific is uh, and you know it, at mm. its heart is a maritime construct mm. Mm. Uh, and the six that you you sort of focus on in the middle part of your book mm. um, the U.S. Japan. China, India, Australia, and Indonesia mm. are mostly Asian countries. So, some of the questions here are, are around what are the boundaries? Where mm. is the Indo Pacific? Good. Yeah, good, good. And yeah. this is, yeah. you know, so one of the questions is is Russia a part mm. of the Indo Pacific? This one's a really, I struggle yeah. with that yeah. question. Yeah. But the other one is the South Pacific, because often when I think of the Pacific, I yeah. think of the South Pacific. Yeah. And so, you know, you've got some conceptions, some maps of the Indo Pacific that will take you all the way to the the coast of Africa, others that will take you to Latin America Mm. and the Pacific Rim. Uh, You know, there there are some states uh, like New Zealand who have been a little bit ambivalent about. Um, the Indo Pacific. They kind of use it in some contexts but yeah. not mm-hmm. others, as you also explain in your book. So, where is the Indo Pacific? Yeah.
2: No, look, that's fantastic. I mean, that's the one, of, one of the obvious questions. You know, there are several really um, difficult critiques of, of this, or you know, important critiques of this concept, and we need to be constantly ready to change our minds when the facts change and contesting our own ideas. I would say that the Indo Pacific is, is a maritime region, and therefore, I've got a very easy get out of jail card because I would say the boundaries are fluid, literally. You know, if I were a policymaker in government, uh, for example, if I was in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and I wanted to send out some sort of you know, multilateral initiative where we need to engage certain countries and not others, of course I need to know who's in and who's out. Mm. You know? So, of course, on day-to-day issues, governments need this sort of clarity. At a conceptual level, I don't think we need one permanent answer as to what the Indo-Pacific is. Instead, I think... I mean, look, we know where the middle is, but we don't always know where the boundaries are. And I think that's actually a very Asian thing. It's, a, it's, it's sort of a mandala, if you like. Um, it's, you know, that everything is based around its core, but uh, that there are actually many belts and many roads and many centres. The sea lanes, it's the connective tissue of the region that matters. It's the maritime centre of the region. So it's the sea lanes and it's the, um, I guess, the the sea lanes of Southeast Asia that are at the centre. Is Africa Indo-Pacific? Is Latin America Indo-Pacific? It depends, and I think it depends on the issue that you're considering at the time and whether the interest and the influence of the big powers of the Indo-Pacific are engaged. So if two small African states have different political differences or localised issues, that's not not an Indo-Pacific issue. If China is... uh, exporting a strategic presence to Africa and geoeconomic influence across the seas and extracting resources back to China, and that's leading to a clash of interests with other powers, that's an Indo-Pacific issue. So I think, in a sense, we can get away with this ambiguity and this fluid definition. When you then start looking at other players, I mean, I would say, in in a sense, the Indo-Pacific is the global region because it is the centre of gravity uh, for security and economics, just as the North Atlantic was for much of the 20th century. So, again, the role of other countries that are not fully resident in the Indo-Pacific as Indo-Pacific players depends on the issue. Mm. Russia um, can and could be a more Indo-Pacific player. Uh, unfortunately, in my view, it tends to be more of a spoiler, if you like, than uh, an effective player. Um, so the Russia-China relationship, with, which, which they want us to think is an alliance, but isn't quite an alliance, is that, uh, that that's clearly a sign of Russia playing into the Indo-Pacific. Russia is an arms dealer to Vietnam and India and others. Uh, is in the, Russia trying to sort of queer the pitch for the United States in the Indo-Pacific? That's all Indo-Pacific. But Russia, as a country that's going to make the decisive difference and that has its core interests engaged here, probably not. Finally, on the South Pacific. Um, I would say that uh, we, have to, look, we have to respect that for small island states, the challenges are different. Um, and, of course, no small island state, no small state wants to be caught up in this great game, if you like, of, of the great powers. However, uh, in some ways, I think the Indo-Pacific actually, actually privileges small island states more than older concepts of the Asia-Pacific. Because it's a maritime region, it privileges the maritime over the land, and there are good reasons for that that we can come to if we have, if we have time. Um, and I don't think, unfortunately, that the small countries of the South Pacific that would rather think that they're just simply Pacific countries, I don't think they're going to escape um, this great power contestation and the role of China. And so I think it's actually in their interest to have a lot of these other sort of Indo-Pacific players jumping in. Um, now, if, you, if your colleagues really need the Slido, I don't mind. I just wanted to flip through a few more maps. If we That's get, right. If we I can time. give a
0: reminder. Um, it yeah. is uh, hash 7861 is the code for Do you for have slider. enough
2: questions? That's the important
0: thing. I have questions. Okay. Uh, so, oh, somebody's... Right. We've got our first Trump mention. Good. Uh, actually, this is one that I wanted to raise. Yeah. Um, we'll
2: go back to the... The America slide, then. Yeah, this yeah. is a
0: really it's a really good question for Australia. Yeah, uh, and and so there's a, there's a couple of dimensions um, to to this this question about Australia's relationship with the United States. So the question here is, what does Trump's trashing of the international rules based mm. framework mean for attempts to create an Indo Pacific order? Yeah. yeah, and I think um, that's that's a really important question, but. Uh, I think it's also important to point that great powers, including the US, but well before Trump, have often had a sort of privileged position of being able to create rules and also break yeah. them when they want, um, and the US is, is no different uh, in that regard. But this is also a question of, of, of what should Australia do in terms of its relationship with the United States, and also a question about what, val- what, what, do, what role do values play yep. um, in those relationships.
2: Okay. So I mean, that's a huge that's a huge set of questions, and I think the one one of the reasons that I think it's really important for us to look at this multipolarity of the Indo-Pacific, and let's just just look at the region for a moment, pretending or imagining that America is not in the region. So this map actually comes in very handy for that sort of thought experiment. Mm. Um, two two things come to mind. First is that um, I I often, or this this sort of thinking about how do we balance and manage China often comes in for the criticism that, well, we can't rely on America, therefore there's no point, if you like, trying to balance or manage China. We just have to put up with however China wants to run the region. That's argument one. Um, Second argument, of course, is is that America is in the region, but actually more as a disruptive force these days than as a constructive force. So I think that... um, It's very useful to be building the ballast in the region for a future where America no longer has primacy, Um, and I think we can do that to a greater extent than we realise, and to a greater extent than I think the Chinese official narrative tells us, when you look at the fact that, and I want to say fact, when you look at the economic projection that by the 2040s, the combined weight of... Uh, India, Japan, and Indonesia will be greater than China by every measure. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that if those three countries um, choose to get together to balance China, it's an easy thing. In fact, politically, it would be extremely hard to get two or even three democracies to cooperate. But it does mean that if they felt an existential threat from China, they've actually got the capability to do something about it. And so The very China that we're saying, some are saying is going to dominate the region within the next generation, actually is going to find that it's struggling against all of these other interests. Now, then there's the America factor. Um, Of course, it's disappointing at many levels about, uh, I mean, there are many disappointing things about America under Trump, but one of the disappointing uh, points for me as an analyst of the region is that Trump actually, to... The credit of his administration was the first U.S. administration to categorically recognise the Indo-Pacific nature of the region. Unfortunately, Trump is exactly the wrong advocate that you kind of want for a concept that is all about partnership, alliances, mutual respect, and so forth. Um, where does that where does that lead us? I think that um, we're obviously. Uh, Middle powers have a huge, like Australia, uh, have a huge uh, pressure on us now to try to hold the line both in the region and globally to defend some of those rules and values that we talk about and don't always honour in practice. I would say also that um, structurally America, I think, is going to remain engaged in the region because it does now see that it's in a kind of competition with China. And so what we need to do, obviously working with the better angels within the, within the US system, and they, they still exist, um, we need, I think, to be preparing the ground for what long-term US engagement in the region looks like at a point where America finally realises that its role in the Indo-Pacific is not primacy anymore, it's something else. It's preeminence, it's another major power, it's another great power, it can still make the difference. And if you think about the, the United States in the first half of this century, that's often the role that it played. I mean, the US negotiated the um, arms limitation between the great powers in the 1920s uh, and actually temporarily did some very good things for regional order. So it can do things without primacy when it wants to. So, again, I'm confident uh, but not optimistic.
0: I think yeah. um, one of the most popular questions on here is, um, is there any conflict between the US Indo-Pacific strategy and Australia's vision of the region? But I think you've covered some of that. If you've but got do you have time, anything, I can talk about it. But uh, I, yeah. Anything else to add? No,
2: look, I, I, the important thing to note, and I think um, Penny alluded to this at the start, you know, just as with other concepts, Europe, Asia, you know, there are multiple interpretations of what this thing actually means, and I don't think we need to impose a single, a single definition at this, at this stage. The US and Japan, um, for those who who know or don't know, um, very clearly a few years ago defined their strategy as I think called the free and open Indo-Pacific. And Australia, India, Indonesia, a lot of the other countries, while we like the broad idea of the Indo-Pacific, we're much more cagey with that term free and open. And when we say it, we don't do it in capital F and a capital O, uh, unlike the Americans and Japanese. And I think a lot of the critics of the concept like to emphasise the differences between the American vision, which is much more openly about counterbalancing China, and the Australian or or Indian Indonesian visions, which are more inclusive. What I'd look for, though, is A, what countries are actually doing, and B, some of the common principles, and interestingly, the common principles underlining all of the Indo-Pacific visions, including the much softer ASEAN Indo-Pacific outlook that was released last year, are principles about uh, connectivity, mutual respect, uh, rules, but rules in terms of uh, respect for the sovereignty of smaller states. And even if we can just get that bare minimum agreed on throughout the region and used in some of those big institutions that were talked about, like the so-called East Asia Summit, which is actually an Indo-Pacific summit by another name, then we're going to get somewhere in buying time to perhaps help our friends in China understand that this is a region too big to dominate.
0: Now, Rory, you and I are mm. both very interested in maritime security, maritime cooperation, and you mentioned rules mm. uh, as being a kind of important um, uh, part of the narrative, a connecting yep. part of the narrative that, that states yep. sort of um, uh, talk about, the rules-based, sort of, particularly things around freedom of, mm. uh, freedom of the seas or, in the US case, freedom of navigation. Uh, we do have a question here about the South China Sea mm. arbitration. Uh, and, of course, um, you know, in the, in the 2016 uh, arbitration between, South, uh, between China and the Philippines, uh, it was considered to be uh, a kind of a, an invalidation of the nine-dash line and China's claims to historic rights. Uh, and the question here is that power seems to uh, be a dominant method of asserting a right. I guess it's the, um, mm. the might-over-right mm. view of the mm. world. So how do uh, states like Australia, Japan, India push back against this assertion mm. of of a claim by China in this maritime area? Um,
2: there's a lot there. Um, and just answer, if you don't have enough questions, I'm happy to get your Slido back. Do you, do you want your Slido oh, that, back? Or yeah, we, got plenty?
0: we have plenty of questions already. We probably won't be able to okay. get through any All right. more. Because I want to,
2: I, I would like to, um, when we talk about, um, in fact, I'll go to it now, when we talk about freedom of navigation, I'm just going to go straight to the end and just give you a picture of what Australia does. But we'll t- you and I can talk about this. We know this one. <laughs> um, look, I, um, I, I think it's really important to identify that, this contest, because I think there is a contest, is working on many, many levels. And so, although interestingly some critics say, well, you know, the book is, not critics of the book, but critics of the Indo-Pacific idea necessarily say that um, if we frame everything as a contest, what hope is there? Um, My book is arguing that there's a contest, but we need to start pushing the, um, the spectrum towards what I would call coexistence and eventually from coexistence moving to something more cooperative. And so in the sea lanes uh, and in the disputed maritime boundaries, and let's take the South China Sea at the core of the Indo-Pacific is where this is happening most centrally at the moment, um, you know, there's a real ballet of sort of many layers going on. There is, I wouldn't say there's cooperation, but there's actually a lot more coexistence than, than a lot of us sort of realise. We see the headlines about China's assertiveness, um, and we, we all, not we, but many nations worry and fret about what this means, and so countries conduct operations or exercises to demonstrate that they have the freedom to navigate through those international sea lanes. Um, The the Australian warship here didn't specifically do this, which uh, I think you and I both spent some time on as guests of the Australian Navy last year, Uh, but it showed presence. And so the Australian Navy and other navies are showing presence in the South China Sea to say, these are international waters. It doesn't mean that we're planning to provoke conflict or anything like that, and a lot of critics will say, well, if the Chinese Navy actually challenged you, what would would you do, in a sense? But I think that what a lot of um, observers underestimate is that the Chinese military is actually quite risk-averse too. And so, in a sense, we've seen over the last 10 years China, with this creeping so-called salami-slicing assertiveness in the South China Sea, where, because it has disputes with other countries over maritime boundaries, and it claims under the nine-dash line pretty much the whole thing, uh, it's created facts in the water. It's built artificial islands. It's had paramilitary fishing fleets harassing other countries, with the Navy lurking in the background, and now that it's built those artificial islands, it challenges other forces if they come within a distance of those islands. However, if you look at the examples of what other countries have done in the past 10 years, fascinatingly, carefully calibrated pushback often causes China to think again and recalculate its cost-benefit analysis. The Japanese, for eight years now, or more, 10 years, have been um, steadily holding their ground in the East China Sea, and we find now... I mean, when was the last time anyone read a headline saying China and Japan on the brink of war in the East China Sea? Eight or nine years ago, those were the headlines. Uh, in fact, the Japanese, a much smaller, weaker country than China by some measures, have managed to hold the line there, and China has accepted that it should turn its attention elsewhere. India did the same on its land border with China three years ago, um, surprised even itself, I think, in its ability to just gently, without actual use of force, uh, there was some physical jostling, <laughs> but without any, any shots being fired, uh, hold the line. And other countries watch these precedents and take a little bit of confidence. And I think within China, there's that recalibration that they don't want to be the masters of infinite risk either. Now, in the South China Sea, there's a legal dimension too. And unfortunately, the Philippines, having won an extraordinary court battle, if you like, international court battle four years ago, then had a change of government and now has a president who disowns his country's own legal victory. But that's not the end of the story. And I think these are pieces of the puzzle that over time will, I think, as China, particularly as China has a lot of its internal problems, and we're now seeing that with coronavirus, for example, uh, China will realise that uh, it's going to have to moderate its ambitions of such a dominant role across the region.
0: Yes. Um, and I think one of the, the sort of the, one of the other issues when it comes to issues like freedom of navigation or freedom of the seas is that some of these states that we consider to be like-minded aren't necessarily hmm. like-minded on things like freedom of navigation and what the maritime rules and how to interpret yeah. those rules. Uh, But I'm going to give you one final question. Uh, This one is a big one from James out in the audience here. What is the likelihood that China invades Taiwan? How can Indo-Pacific nations disincentivise China from making such a decision? That's a big question, but I want to couch that in a bigger question. Which is what are the key flashpoints in the Indo Pacific? Okay. What is really going to be great. the biggest security challenge? Great,
2: great question. Um, going back to flashpoints, there we go. There's a lot of flashpoints for you. Um, so, and this is actually important because this shows this is a recent graphic of maritime of commercial shipping in the Indo Pacific. Uh, I know, interestingly, most of this has collapsed in the last month due to coronavirus, but. Hopefully it's not a permanent, <laughs> permanent collapse. the point is we're incredibly deeply connected in the region and so it's a region where through these these connections that have grown over the last twenty to thirty years uh, both economic benefit but also the risk of contagion of every kind not just pandemics but you know economic shocks cyber uh, environmental attacks and so on uh, you know nothing nothing can be stopped for very long no, no island is an island anymore so any Conflict that occurs in the region is going to cascade right across the region as one strategic system. And yes, one of those flashpoints is Taiwan. Um, the book doesn't say a lot about Taiwan. Uh, inter- interestingly, just here's the Chinese Battle Command Centre, so that will give you a little a little <laughs> reminder of what's going on. Again, the Indian Ocean, right in the middle of the frame, that tells you something. Um, look, one, obviously, one of the the four. Long-term flashpoints, you know, that another uh, author, Brendan Taylor, has written about, is the China, the unresolved um, status of Taiwan, and the unfinished Chinese civil war, as the PRC sees it. Um, I'd say, though, that. A lot of the other, a lot of the real flashpoints across the region are yet to be identified. Now we, we know the connectivity. We also know that a small incident in a different part of the region could have a cascading effect. It's even possible that China will find a need to militarily intervene somewhere in Africa or the Indian Ocean or South Asia or the Pacific in the future for reasons that are to do with protecting its people, its business, its interests. But then could lead to a larger, a larger conflict. So I think we need to think. Uh, Beyond the traditional four flashpoints. Having said that, if um, uh, a a Taiwan Strait conflict would obviously be a major catastrophe for the region, catastrophe for the region and the world, I take a different view on that uh, than the view taken by some authors who say, "Well, in that case, we just basically have to spend all our time telling Taiwan." To lower its expectations it's pretty rich for a democracy of 25 million to tell a democracy of 23 million it has no right to exist so instead again we have to think a bit about china's risk calculus here and i think sending a clear message um as all countries of the region should send that anything that disrupts the economic status quo of the region that doesn't mean that we recognize taiwan as an independent state but we recognize it's critical to the global economy i mean it's the number one supplier of semiconductors, for example. Any uh, threat to Taiwan as a core part of the regional and global economy is a threat to regional order. Secondly, anything that I think other countries can do to maintain the, um, I, guess the I guess, the democratic institutions in Taiwan is, again, worthwhile and not necessarily a provocation to China for cross-strait conflict. Um, in the end, the, and this is where the role of the United States and the region will remain essential, in the end, of course, it's the, um, the deterrent factor of the US relationship with, with Taiwan that more than anything else uh, would be, I guess, preventing China from crossing that final threshold. But if you think about it, if you, th- if you put yourself in the shoes of Xi Jinping for a moment and you think, on the one hand, you want to be the leader who's seen to have reunified the motherland as... as, as, as I guess the Chinese people have been led to believe that there's an unfinished civil war. On the other hand, you had enough trouble in Hong Kong last year. um, Can you imagine that perhaps one of the worst things, one one of the worst achievements would be not so much losing a conflict with Taiwan but actually winning it because occupying then a 23 million strong island of Taiwan that would be in permanent resistance the generations I think would again be a critical um, act of self-harm to a China that actually does want a stable regional environment. So I think there are some creative things there that other countries can play with that are not simply saying uh, it's all or nothing and um, we want to keep our heads down but we also don't want to see a war in the Taiwan Strait. Really interesting just a few new thoughts for you there. Perspective. You know, yeah, yeah, no,
0: very interesting, and I'm glad that you mentioned Four Flashpoints. Another fine Latrobe yeah, University little, little Press there, title yeah. there. Um, but thank you, Rory, um, for coming in tonight. Uh, there are books available for sale. Uh, I believe you've signed a few, a few already, I'll sign a few and more, yeah. sign a few more and have a chat um, just before uh, we uh, we thank you. Uh, I want to uh, remind people of some events that we have coming up. On the 24th of March at the La Trobe City Campus, we have Dr James Gomez uh, coming in to talk to us about hate speech. uh, uh, We we are running this event in collaboration with AsiaLink, uh, Penny's organisation. So that's very exciting. And on the 27th of March, we are running an event on human rights and academic freedoms um, with Human Rights Watch, and that is about how do we talk about... China um, and, and, and human rights abuses without um, creating kind of anti-Asian sentiments in the community. So uh, that's on the 27th of March, also in the city campus, and you can join our main mailing list um, to get more information about those events. But thank you all for coming here, and please um, join me in thanking Rory thank for uh, an excellent discussion. Thank Thanks, you.
2: Thanks, Pete. Cheers. Thank you. I'll shake hands still. Yeah. Thank you.